It's time for Tycoons of Small Biz, spotlighting the true backbone of the American economy, the true tycoons of business in America, the owners, founders, and CEOs of small businesses. The show's hosts, Austin Peterson and Landon Nance, are registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Backbone Planning Partners is a marketing name for registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Now let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's Tycoons. Good afternoon, Tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host here, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you live from my home today in Gilbert, Arizona, where it's a balmy 88 degrees. So I'm sure you're most of you are listening and you're very jealous of that today. But I've also got my co-host, Landon Mance, coming to us from Las Vegas, where I'm guessing the temperature is about the same there. I just flipped my thermometer or my thermostat from heat to air and i've got the ac cranking right now it's about i think it's about 78 or 79 here today so gotcha so very comfortable and and nice temperature so before we jump into the show uh today is a very very special episode today is tycoons of small biz 100th episode today we're excited to have on the show with us, somebody that many of you may know and have heard of before. His name is Greg McEwen. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's the author of two books, Essentialism and Effortless. And then he also has a consulting arm of his business that's called McEwen Inc. So Greg, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Yeah. So in the interest of full disclosure, Greg and I do know each other. Uh, We don't know each other super well, but Greg moved into my area of the world here recently from Southern California. And uh, we go to church together. So I've interacted with Greg a little bit, but I don't know him personally very, very well, just because he's just barely moved in. But I will tell you one thing, Greg, I am known in our congregation as the, the man of style. But I learned this past Sunday that you may be able to actually give me a run for my money. <laughs> well, I need all the help I can get. That's, that's, all, that's all the one can say about that. Yeah. Well, Greg was wearing a very nice suit on Sunday. So uh, I, I've got to make sure I keep my game up there because I can't I can't lose that title. But the title belongs to you for, firmly and, and it always will. <laughs> but you've always got a better head of hair. So I will I will always lose in that category. This <laughs> is all temporary. We, we all we all end up as wise as you. We all end up saving time. Uh, with 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 our hair dryers eventually it's just a just a just a timing thing yeah I, I tell Landon that all the time I, I tell him the amount of time that I've saved over the last 10 years for just not having to comb my hair that you're spending on a daily basis puts me light years ahead of you <laughs> <laughs> well Greg before we jump into the business side and you know talking about the books and, and so forth we always have our guests tell a little bit about themselves personally so Obviously, people can hear the accent. They know that you didn't grow up in the United States necessarily. So tell us about you. You know, where did you grow up? What did you study in school? I know you've got a, a deep history, and I know some of it because I've I've listened to Essentialism and about half of Effortless so, so far on Audible. So I'll, I'll let you kind of tell us what you'd like us to know about you personally. I was born in London, England. I grew up in Yorkshire, in James Herriot country, for those that know that 
brilliant series. I uh, went on a mission to Toronto, Canada for a couple of years. And then that sort of, I uh, went back to law school after that uh, in England and thought that would be my story. Uh, but a little unexpectedly was in the United States for a couple of weeks. And while I was here, somebody said, well, look, you know, if you do decide to stay in America, then you should help us with this, whatever. And it just gave me this spark of, well, what if, uh, what would, what would you do if you could do anything? And when I was done brainstorming the answer to that question, I realized that, you know, I had all these answers to the question, but law school wasn't one of them. And so, you know, the, the short of it is I quit law school to pursue uh, what felt like my uh, professional mission in life, and that was to teach and write. And I've been able to uh, to do that in one way or another, what's now more than 20 years. And uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's been a brilliant adventure. It took me, uh, I mean, I, I did print journalism at BYU, did my Stanford, uh, graduate work at Stanford. Uh, in fact, at the time of recording, uh, you know, having this conversation, I just uh, was accepted into a doctoral program uh, at Cambridge University in England. So I will go there as a family for for the next part of this or this unexpected journey uh it's really been a remarkable thing it's taken me all over the world to work with leaders and to work with organizations it's taken me all through silicon valley uh and and, and beyond and it's been an entrepreneurial adventure you know that's part of what it's been uh and, and in some ways i think of myself as sort of like an entrepreneur with a pen in my hand or something like that and and so that's that overlap between uh, between ideas uh, that, that with impact and the ideas of how can you make this relevant to small, medium-sized businesses, any size business really, uh, is interesting to me uh, and has been has been my fascination for these more than 20 years. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great background story for us to understand and see where you are today. I mean, we we recorded a recent episode uh, with a woman named Jennifer Zick, and you know, you you were putting together that list and trying to decide, you know, what what's most important and what do I do in life? And and she, like so many entrepreneurs that started a business, was she lost her job? Essentially, there was a private equity acquisition of the company that she was working for, and her position was eliminated. And she spent time in her cabin up in the northern part of of Minnesota, and basically sat down and said, if I were to start a business. What would that look like? What would it be? And then, you know, built this organization and they just celebrated their fifth year. She's built a fantastic organization. And it's, it's sometimes things like that, where it's an unexpected thing that kind of leads us to what we're really meant to be. Like you said, your professional mission. Well, I mean, one of the things it, for, for anyone who, for anyone who chooses to go to a, a new country, right? So for someone who doesn't stay, you know, where they were born, there's something about that process where the, the culture of the country they go to names something in them. And they, 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 otherwise they would just stay where they were. And one of the things that is inherent in the, um, in the fabric culture DNA of, uh, of, of the United States is that entrepreneurialism. I don't think I said that right, but I'm going to try again. Uh, entrepreneurialism. Did I say it? <laughs> get it. Would you get I would, I would go with entrepreneurship. It's easier to say. Entrepreneurship. The entrepreneurship is <laughs> far easier to say. Very wise counsel. It's not obvious that 
you know, that that a country would have, you know, such, you know, entrepreneurship in their culture. Like, it's not obvious that people, it's not that just people are inherently want to do that. Uh, maybe they have, there's a desire to do it, but you need a lot in your culture, in a culture of support, in a culture of let's do things differently, let's not do them as they've been done before, in order to, to make that seem possible, plausible, inviting. I mean, it's, it's a real asset. It's a tremendous asset. Uh, that, uh, and of course, it's not utterly unique to the United States, but there's, there's something I think about, the, about its origin uh, that makes this a, a you know a marvelously uh, entrepreneurial uh, place to be, and I still feel that now, and I still feel very excited about the possibilities for people, whether they're individually, you know, they're currently in a career, you know, they're working for somebody else, uh, but they they're, they're eyeing entrepreneurship from that place, or whether they're someone who actually has started out. I, I think it's a very very good time. Uh, and, to, and, and is a great place to be an entrepreneur. In fact, let's say uh, I'd rather be here, uh, you know, and now than anywhere or any when if I wanted to be an entrepreneur, which I continue to want. Yeah, I think that's a great, great way to put it. I mean, that comment actually makes me think of the play Hamilton, right? My, my wife wears around a T-shirt that says young, scrappy and hungry, just like my country, right? It's a great term. Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's that that kind of has led that in our in our country is we are young, we are scrappy, and it's a place of immigrants where people came looking for a better place or a better life, looking for religious freedom, looking for you know a lot of different freedoms, which is you know really what leads us to where we are today in entrepreneurship in the U.S. Yeah, young, scrappy, and hungry. I mean, it, you, you have to. I mean, there's a saying in England that says uh, that something like the first, you know, the first five hundred years of an institution is usually the hardest. Uh, and, and, you know, that, 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 that idea alone has, has its own advantages, has its own power to have something that has such longevity. Uh, but it, it stands in such contrast, you know, the, the disadvantage is, is, well, we, uh, you know, we, we, well, it's interesting because, because in this experience I've just had with, with University of Cambridge, which is, you know, they, it's an institution that has existed for 800 years. Think of that, right? So, and, and, and Oxford are older, Oxford's a thousand years. Uh, so, I mean, that is itself breathtaking. And you have to, I suppose what I'm trying to get to here is that the, the costs of that are that you build systems that are very hard to understand. You, you know, even the professors that I was working with maybe maybe several months ago who had first, you know, expressed their own interest in maybe having me work with them in this program and do this, said to me, you know, basically, I would like you to do this. Uh, I'm going to signal this to the right people, and I don't know how it works from there. Like, it's so complex over after that. I have to leave that to them. So there's a disadvantage in that kind of mindset. And, and, and in fact, uh, there's, a, there's a really interesting uh, book called uh, the, complex, uh, the, 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 um, the Collapse of Complex Societies. And, and this, uh, there's, there's something in this, I think, for our conversation today. But, but basically, it's, it's a, by a, an American um, uh, historian. And he says, he says that the reason that societies collapse is that they face problems 
solves them, and they think that's, that's great, but they've done something unintentionally. They've created new social and emotional complexity. And so that's fine at first. And then you go to the next level. You say, okay, well, we're going to, um, you know, we, we have a new problem. We solve a new level problem. And then all this added complexity. And you keep going and going until, here's the thing, until you get to a point where all of your resources are being utilized not to solve new problems, but to maintain all the social complexity you didn't really even intend to make in the first place. And so that's an interesting point because then you becoming as an institution or a country or, you know, or even as a team, right? You become really fragile because everything's being utilized just to maintain your, you know, your, your, your existing position. Deriving from that, when I worked with Silicon Valley companies, that's what I noticed was a was this predictable pattern. Yeah, so there's a young, you know, young, scrappy and hungry. Uh, certainly they start that way, small, simple focus leads to success, leads to options. That sounds like the right problem to have, but I found, uh, not just in my research, but in working with them, that, that it, it did often turn out to be a serious problem if it led to what Jim Collins has called the undisciplined pursuit of more. And so now that's that's sort of the enemy of our story, because as soon as you fall into that, you will plateau in your progress or fail altogether. And so let me just bring the full circle to both of these ideas, because what we need is to be entrepreneurial and lean so that we can survive 800 years, 1,000 years, you know, build something that lasts. And so it's this interesting, let's call it a yin and yang diagram. You know, like the yin and yang, you, we've all seen that image, and that's symbolic for sort of explore and eliminate. And that's the idea. It's my language for it. But, but if you spend too much time eliminating, too stagnant, then, you will, then you'll, you'll dry up, become irrelevant. It's boring. It's not interesting. If you spend too much time and explore, yes, you'll, you'll, you'll feel entrepreneurial, but you won't really be entrepreneurial because you won't make much progress. And so you need both of those that's the idea of the, the black dot, the white dot, and how they inter, interface is that you are creating something that is entrepreneurial, but also built to survive and to last. And that's that special kind of balance that every small business owner actually has to figure out. So I've tried to draw from a variety of places to make that point, but that's the sweet spot so that you can keep innovating, but you're also clear and steady enough that you can actually survive. I know Landon wants to jump in here, but I just want to, I want to close that loop a little bit and just, and just, I guess, summarizing what you just said in, in this way, entrepreneurs and business owners and people in general for that matter, but specifically entrepreneurs and business owners for our audience and, and what we're doing, it's important that you continue to learn things, continue to read things, continue to listen to other people who are experts in certain areas and draw from lots of different areas, right? You just brought in Jim Collins, great books, good to great, built to last, fantastic, fantastic author and has some great you know, ideas there. Obviously, there's Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, one of the very first business books that I read. But it's, it's those types of things that as entrepreneurs and business owners, if we will pull those little ideas and realize that if we can put that into practice, it will help us stay focused on 
what's truly essential, which I know we're going to get into in here, here in just a minute, but I'm sure Landon's got a couple of things he wants to say as well. So sorry to, to jump in there, Landon. Yeah. Thanks, Austin. And Greg, uh, again, good, good, uh, good to have you here, man. We really appreciate you making the time. So, so I'm known for asking the really hard hitting questions. All right. So brace yourself here. <laughs> so for, for our listeners that uh, cannot see you that are just listening, uh, you've got a really interesting backdrop. It's a few bookshelves with books that appear to be color coordinated. So maybe the whole point of doing that is for us to ask about it. So Tell us about what's going on. Behind you. <laughs> uh, the, book, the books behind me um, are just the fastest way to reveal one's OCDness to the world. That's, that's what that's what you can you can conclude from this. Um, I, I don't know if there's a there's a deeper point to be made uh, other than other than what why do you what what for for me at least I'm I'm interested in is to is to is to design my choices in a way that you do something that really matters. That's a core idea behind everything that I've, I've researched, everything that I've tried to do is, is not to live by default, but by design. And that if you operate by design, that you can achieve breakthrough results, but without burning out. Uh, and, and, and as a, I mean, a, a small business owner has so many things pulling on them, it's very easy to become incredibly reactive, uh, reactive to good things. You know, you even become reactive to the success. So you live increasingly a chaotic experience. And there's many business owners, I would say, listening to this right now who will feel busy but not necessarily productive, who will feel stretched too thin at work or at home, who will feel that their day is constantly hijacked by other people's agenda for them. Uh, and, and that's what I would call the way of the non-essentialist. And the antidote is the way of the essentialist. And, and, and perhaps there is a metaphor between that and, and sort of the, uh, the state of uh, maybe the state of one's bookshelves or the state of one's closet. You know, that's all symbolic of how out of order our lives start to feel. And, and that can be sometimes literally because of success. I call it the paradox of success. And that's what we have to learn is not, of course, I'm not anti-success, but how do we become successful at success? How do we keep creating uh, order out of chaos? How do we get to be more selective, even as our success is, is starting to overwhelm us and, and distract us from the things that will help us to get through to the next level? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's so much relevance in what you said to our, you know, individual practice, because we serve primarily, you know, small business owners. And, and I, I think a lot of people like yourself that consult and coach and guide and, and advise, you know, businesses, a common theme seems to be that, you know, the, the number one detractor to success and growth is distraction. And I think you can go in a lot of different areas. I know that's that's very broad, but in some way, shape, or form, they get distracted. And as you said, it can be simply from the success, or it can be a slew of other things. And we see that, I mean, almost daily in conversations that we have. You know, these are successful small businesses. Maybe they're doing five, 10, 20 million dollars in revenue. 
and they just they're just they're plateaued they cannot seem to get to the next level and they don't they don't know how to do it they don't know what questions to ask they don't know what problems that they need to solve and um, i love how you kind of uh, relate that into this concept of essentialism which is which is obviously the title of of one of your you know new york times best selling books so talk to us a little bit about what that book is what it's all about and then how how can some of our business owner folks that are listening to this you know what are a couple of takeaways that they can uh, that might right, might resonate with them i mean look the the we we have so many inputs so much noise coming at us all of us all of the time and and sometimes we make that worse because we double down we literally not metaphorically but literally click on this infinite pool of information and you know and 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 we get flooded with various messages uh, even other sort of entre- entrepreneurial famous people that will say oh it's all about hustle it's all about this it's all about that and 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 you have this so many different ideas and and maybe then we add to that the fomo or the fear of missing out if any of my competitors are doing X, then I have to do it too. Uh, every idea we hear is, a, oh, yeah, me too. I want to be part of that. And, and so very quickly, for a variety of sources, we are completely overloaded. What I found is that our will plateau at the same level as our selectivity. I want to just sort of slow that down for a second because I think it's such an important idea. We... We, we keep saying yes to things. We keep pursuing things. We keep going after things to a certain point where we can't, we can't go forward anymore. It's like these, you know, the collapse of complex societies, but it's the collapse of our small business is that we start to just go, there's just no more of me. And so, in fact, there's no more. What, what goes is there's no more like our health goes, our relationships go. There's no space for us to think anymore. And so what that means is there's no space to explore anymore what really is essential, what really matters, what would break us through to the next level. It's a very practical, it's not not philosophical, it's like there's just no time. It's like successful people who have run out of space. And so you just keep doing and doing, but then the risk is the most important things aren't even being done. They're not even making it onto our to-do lists. And, and, so, and so we start to plateau because, because everything is utilized, everything's used up. And so what I would say is the, the, the first key of becoming an essentialist, that is someone who pursues the, it's like the disciplined pursuit of less instead of the undisciplined pursuit of more. And the first practice is, well, I was going to say, but let, let me say it this way. I think the first thing you should do is, is use the 90% rule. And the 90% rule is this. You, you want to only say yes to things that are a 90% or above important. So, so that's a very extreme rule, actually, right? So, so that means if it's, a, if it's a good thing, that's a pretty good thing. Well, you, you normally you say yes, it's pretty good, might as well. Unaware that by saying yes to that thing, you are saying no to something that is 90% or above important, something that would move the needle, something that would, would change the game for you, would really 
have a sense of satisfaction that you actually accomplished today and this quarter, and this year, something that would move you into the next level of contribution, a higher point. And, and so that's the trade-off many entrepreneurs are making all the time without knowing it. So they get muddied in the middle. They're saying yes to all of these things. Or maybe they're saying yes to things that are only 10% important. And so they're just consumed with the trivial many instead of the other end, this 90% or above the vital few. Yeah. So here's the rule is if it's not a clear yes, it becomes a clear no. That, that's what I would think I would say is my sort of first thing that someone should adopt as they try to become more of an essentialist entrepreneur. Yeah, I, I love that. And I immediately, as you're, as you're saying that, you know, I, I can't help it. My brain just starts to, you know, reflect back on situations, you know, and uh, again, that's so relevant. I mean, we have so many conversations with entrepreneurs and they say, hey, we're going to, we're going to go and we're, we're going to do this. We're going to venture into this new line of business. We're going to buy this new piece of equipment so we can do this or that. And it's like, okay, well, why don't we just hit the pause button for one second here and let's just kind of talk about it, right? What's your plan for this piece of machinery? How is it going to impact your business? What kind of forecasting or projections have you done to really understand the cost of this thing versus the production that it can put out? And how does that translate to what you want it to translate to profitability or revenue growth or, or whatever it is. But what I'm, what I've gleaned so far, just from, from what you've been talking about is this is a really different approach because it's almost like your approach is more proactive so that as they're reaching that potential ceiling, the ceiling just continues to move further and further and further and further out versus a lot of people, it seems like that they're they're focused on working with that person once they've hit the ceiling mm-hmm. and their their head just bumps up against it over and over and over. Is that somewhat accurate? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think that that is it, it's it's relevant. I mean, if if you take well, you're talking about the bookcase, but if we take like the av- average closet and and just use this as a metaphor, right? Like you go into your closet and and maybe your closet is just packed full of stuff. It is, gets pretty messy because it's so full. And then you can't really find anything. And, 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 and it's like the undisciplined pursuit of more. It's a non-essentialist closet. It's packed full. And then, and then you think about, well, what would you have to do about that? How would you solve it? And some of us, most of us, have had the experience of going in there still with a non-essentialist mindset. And we take an item off the shelf and we look at it as if to get rid of it. And in that moment, we have this moment of like, Maybe I could use this in the future someday, possibly, maybe. And so then that item goes back on the shelf. And so th- there's a term for that. It's called the endowment effect. And it's, it means that we value stuff too much or more than it's really worth because we own it. And, and that's like great for an entrepreneur because everything you do as an entrepreneur is kind of yours and you put your thumbprint on it. it. You have a sense of ownership. That's part of the advantage of entrepreneurship, but it has this unintended, unhelpful consequence that everything you value a bit much is like your little baby. You know, you're looking after everything. You want all of it. Every project matters to you. And of course, the answer to the closet is to say, well, not, not could I ever use it in the future again, maybe, but is this, like, do I love it? Do I wear it often? 
I want it in the last six months at least? Would I, you know, is it, does it, Marie Kondo question, does it spark joy? And all of those are questions that are just trying to increase the selectivity to beyond your current overload. So that then you say, well, if I had to get rid of everything that doesn't fit me, that I don't love, that I haven't worn in the last six months, that doesn't spark joy, yeah, most of that stuff is now gone out of the closet. Let's say at least half of it. Maybe it would be 90% of it for some of us. But what's great is that what you're left with, you're left with less but better. You have the great, by definition, all that you have are the things that you love, that you wear often, that are great. And, and you also have that additional value, which is space. And that feels good, but it also makes way for something else. You can go shopping and, and find something else that you absolutely love. I mean, this is, this is now back to Austin's, uh, Austin's uh, slightly untrue but nice compliment about my suit on Sunday. It is, is like this space for something that you absolutely love, that you feel great. And now this is just the metaphor. I mean, it's literally true with a closet, but the metaphor for an entrepreneur is if you are loading your life, your business full of things that aren't great, they're not essential. You know, they, they were essential a few years ago and you're just carrying on doing something now that isn't really, isn't really what you, uh, feel a greatest sense of mission, highest sense of contribution about. And so that's, that's one way to think about this, is to ask questions like, is this project, the one I'm now signing up for, is this my highest point of contribution? Is this the best thing I could do with my time and energy? Is that the thing I most feel called to do? Is this my highest talent? Is this for the very best client? Those are examples of selective questions that can start to help us discern the difference between the, you know, the, the non-essential many and the essential few. Yeah, you know, I think there's, it obviously can lead to, both of you have mentioned it at different points in this conversation, the plateau that so many business owners run into but it can also run into, or it can also cause them to run into other problems, whether it be in their personal lives or, or elsewhere. And I've got kind of some thoughts that I want to unpack on that. But let's take a quick break. Let's hear a call to action for our audience, and then we'll come back and, and talk a little bit more about that. Hey there, tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. If you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest, please follow and then message us at Tycoons of Small Biz on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit. And if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast, but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years and you'd like to know what your business is worth, Please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you and thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now back to today's program. All right, Tycoons, welcome back. We're here with author Greg McEwen. We're talking about his two books, Essentialism and Effortless. And before the break, we were just talking about, you know, kind of some unintended consequences with trying to do too much. And the reality is that that made me think right away of a different book, actually, a book called Driven. Not sure if you've read it, but it's about the life of Larry H. Miller, 
who owned a bunch of car dealerships in the Western United States, ultimately bought the Utah Jazz, bought a bunch of different movie theaters or, you know, opened a bunch of different movie theaters, built, built a really, really nice business, one that most people would be very, very happy with. But along the way, he missed a lot of family stuff. His health was terrible. He died way too young because he didn't take care of himself. So I think that that kind of plays right into what you're talking about, where you've got to choose that. It's got to be above that 90% or better importance, right? Because I think if we had an opportunity to ask him today, if what he would do differently, if he had an opportunity to do it over again, he maybe would have done things differently, whether it's outsourcing certain things, meaning, you know, his executive team could do certain things that he was doing himself that caused him to just run himself ragged or just saying, you know what, I don't need a business that's that large. Either either answer is fine. Right. But I, I think if he had that opportunity to do it again, he would have done it differently. Look, that goes to the heart of it. You know, essentialism, it's, you know, it's built into the name. It's not about. You know, it's not about, it's not successism. Uh, you know, it's, it's what's very important. And you want to design a life that really matters. And you also want to make it as effortless as possible to actually do the things that really matter uh, so that you build it in that the default position becomes eventually, because you designed the system right, that the most important people get the most important attention, that your routine reinforces it for people. Uh, and and so, so that even if you're not pay, paying attention to your life today, the most important people got the most important attention from you. You, know, you want to, to shift it. For a lot of entrepreneurs, the promise of entrepreneurship is that they can you know, have the freedom to choose where they put their energy and time and attention and resources. But in practice, what often happens, especially in a culture that sometimes celebrates the hustle and the, and the more, is that you end up with more and more of less and less of the important things. And so, I mean, this is part of how I came to essentialism itself was when I got an email from my boss at the time uh, who said, look, Friday between 1 and 2 p.m. would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby. And sure enough, uh, you know, Friday morning comes along and um, I, yeah, we're in the hospital. Our daughter's just been born uh, and I'm feeling torn. I've got my phone on. I've got my laptop open and I'm trying to keep everybody happy on the basis. If you can do it all, then you can have it all. And I, you know, to my shame, I went to the meeting yeah, it's clear, isn't it, to everybody, anybody listening, that I made a fool's bargain, that I violated something essential for something non-essential. And what I learned from that was the simplest of lessons, and it's this. If you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And that's really what gave me fire for the deed to try to uh, pursue what eventually became essentialism and, and now with, uh, with the, the newer book effortless is how to help people, um, you know, be, be wiser than I was and to make their design of their life such that they can achieve what matters most, break through to their highest point of contribution and to do it without burning out. For me, that's a mission that's, that's worth pursuing. So Greg, if I can jump in real quick, 
Um, so you kind of stole my thunder a little bit because uh, I wanted to ask you, I, I hope that this isn't, I hope you don't feel like I'm putting you on the spot here. I don't think you will, but I, as I was doing some background research on you, um, you know, just, just looking at some Google articles and, you know, things like that. So you're obviously from a professional standpoint, a pretty successful guy. Looks like you've got a beautiful family, three, four, uh, three girls and a, and a boy, correct? Yes. Okay. You're married. You were a, a bishop in your church, which for people that don't, know what that means that can be I, I mean close to a full-time job in itself maybe anywhere from 10 to 30 hours a week on on average so how how do you how do you apply or how have you applied essentialism to your own life you know I, I know you just kind of gave us an example that's why I said you kind of stole my thunder but but clearly at, at one point when you were raising kids, being a husband, being a bishop, you know, having your professional career, I mean, that is a lot to, to juggle at once. So how did you, you know, how, how did you, you put essentialism into practice during that point in your life? And how did you kind of, or maybe what did you learn from that as well as you reflected back on it now? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I have failed many, many times in, in, in probably everything that I've ever taught. Uh, you know, you, you're in the key is uh, in the subtitle of essentialism, right, is a disciplined pursuit. You're pursuing what's essential. And the question is not whether you're it's like if you go on a flight from uh, from you know, you know San Francisco to New York, the flight is off track most of the time. Uh, the reason it arrives on time and in the right location is that it's constantly making course corrections. And the course correction approach is, is the key element of essentialism, is to, is to say, how quickly am I going to readjust? How quickly am I gonna come back to what matters? And so I, I find it to, uh, helpful to have, for example, a, a daily practice of evaluating your life, right? Okay, uh, I, I, I started a, a journal practice um, maybe 11 years ago. I, I, I'd been intermittent until then, but maybe 11 years ago, I said, okay, I want to do this every day to be able to evaluate, look at my life. What am I grateful for? What are the things that are working today? What's not? And how can I make quick, quick adjustments to that by tomorrow? And so it, it's been, I mean, I, I think I haven't missed a day now in 11 years. And, and that simple practice is an example of you know, the key for it, by the way, for me, was not that I was writing essays every day. The idea was never less than one sentence. And for a while, it was never more than five sentences. So, so this, actually, this is one of the strategies I teach in, a, in Effortless, is that you, you need a lower bound for any goal you set, but you also need an upper bound because you, humans are so bad at consistency. And yet that's where all the power is. What you want is to be able to, to make it as effortless as possible to, to do something tomorrow and a year from now and 10 years from now. Uh, most people actually kind of know what's essential. Uh, they certainly have a sense of it. And so what they really need help with is how do you do this in a way that you can keep doing it, not intermittently. How do most people write their journals? They, they do three pages day one, takes them an hour. <laughs> day two, they don't have an hour. 
And besides, they have to make up for the hour they just used on the journal yesterday. So by day three, it's over. And, and every so often, someone inspires them and they go, okay, I'm going to do it this time. And they go through the same intermittency. Uh, the, the, the key is small changes and things we do often that help us to be able to arrive where we want to go. So that's been one you know, tactical way that I have tried to keep coming back to what matters and, and to try and do that faster than maybe somebody who isn't an aspiring essentialist uh, you know, like I am. That's, that's one practical way that I've tried to do it. Austin, I'll let, I'll let you jump in. I just wanted to mention something real quick. Greg, I'm reading Atomic Habits right now. Right. And I, I had heard this story before, but I don't know why. I just, I love this story. And I think it's about the British cycling team that were totally off the radar, were, were not well, well known as a, as a high ranking team. They brought in a new coach and his entire game plan was to make tiny incremental, 1% incremental changes to, to their program, which ultimately, you know, a year or two or three years later resulted in winning the, the Tour de France multiple different times over the course of a couple of years. And one of the things that stands out in my mind, I guess maybe because of, of the time that we're living in or, or hopefully coming out of in regards to COVID, but mm. one of the things that he the coach had the guys focus on was properly learning how to wash their hands <laughs> to lessen the chance of them getting sick. And I just, uh, I don't know why. I just think that is the, the, the coolest story. And it's just such a great example of how if we can just make these little teeny tiny improvements but continue to build upon those, uh, we, can, we can be in such better places in our lives and our business. But, but like you said, with the journal, it, it's so hard to, to be consistent in these uh, improvements that you make in your life. I hadn't, hadn't thought about this, but, but, uh, but, but James Clear does actually use exactly the story I just mentioned to you, uh, literally, the way that I started keeping a journal is in Atomic Habits. It's about part of what he's trying to, to share when he says, look, these tiny ideas, like one sentence a day is really powerful because it helps you to continue on. And so there is a total uh, overlapping between, quite literally between what I just shared uh, and, and, and how he, he utilized that example. Yeah, well, and, and I would say the same thing is true of, you know, people trying to lose weight or, you know, run more often or run faster or, you know, there's just, it's about the small, consistent changes in our lives to be more of an essentialist, right? So let, let's transition a little bit. You've you kind of mentioned effortless a little bit, but, you know, hopefully the answer to this question is not because I signed a two book deal, but what, what is it that, that, you know, took you to the point of saying, okay, I, I finished essentialism. It was wildly successful, probably beyond even what you hoped it was going to be. But that ultimately typically leads to there's something to add on to that, right? Just like Jim Collins, good to great to built to last, et cetera. What is it that said in, in your mind, I've got to write another book and it's got to be effortless because knowing that you had written that before I listened to essentialism, I kept hearing the word effortless 
when yeah. I listened to essentialism, right? So tell us what brought you to that point. Well, I mean, first of all, there's just a, there's just a limit to, to what, like, what people think essentialism is, is discern what's essential, eliminate what's non-essential. And they're not wrong about that. That is the first two of three practices that make an essentialist an essentialist. But the third, and I cover it in essentialism, but it just sort of was missed for many, many people, uh, was, was this idea of when you come to execution, uh, that they, they would carry their sort of non-essentialist, perfectionist, overcomplicating, overthinking minds with them to execution. So even where they've identified what's essential, they'll then overcomplicate, overstrain, overstretch, uh, overdo their attempt to execute. And that will, in fact, make it much, much harder than it needs to be to do what really matters. And, uh, and, and I was already experiencing that in my own life. Uh, I was already sensing that I had removed many of the non-essentials. I was trying to really focus on the things that mattered. I was trying to live what I was teaching. And still I found myself saying, well, yeah, but what if there are too many essentials? I mean, what if you really do have so many responsibilities uh, and they're real uh, and, you do, and, and do you, well, your choice are, well, do you put it down? Now you're in the 90% and above, but what do you do? What if 90% and above is still more than you can do? And so, uh, and in the midst of that already, circumstance and experience, uh, one of my daughters became really, really sick and very unexpectedly and, and with no, um, you know, no diagnosis. Uh, so if you imagine someone going from the picture of health uh, and then, uh, you know, like suddenly having, uh, you know, like going really, really slow, like, like just going down a slow motion, almost like they're getting Parkinson, Parkinson's disease, it takes them two full minutes to write their own name. It's almost as much time as it takes to boil an egg to write your own name. Uh, to to it takes hours to eat a meal. All emotion is suddenly disappearing, and her cognitive capabilities reducing daily. And every neurologist shaking, you know, shrugging their shoulders. I don't know what to tell you. Every test is in the normal range. Okay, so that became a completely overwhelming, discombobulating challenge. And you say, well, I already know what's essential. I've already eliminated, you know, the, the, the non-essentials. You know, you, you say, okay, we're going to help, you know, my daughter get well. We already know that. My wife knows that. We're unified. Our family knows that. So that's, that's important, but it's already resolved. Now what? And what we found was that, and I knew it maybe conceptually before, but certainly learned about it in a completely different way, that there really are two paths to execution, two paths we tend one, but we don't think there are two. We think there's one. You know, what, what do we think the path of execution is in that situation? It's like all, all in, all out effort, all the time. You're going to fire. You don't sleep. It's no problem. You're going to stay focused on this. This is what matters. You're going to just be consumed in it. Uh, you're going to let anxiety consume you, stress of it consume you. But the, the, the downsides of that are serious. Right? What is the downside? Well, you'll burn out and you still haven't achieved what you're trying to achieve. You don't even know how long it will take. You know, is this a month? Is this six months? Is this 10 years? You don't know. Nobody knows. So uh, in those circumstances, 
And we're all basically faced with that. When we think of the great, important missions of our lives, we have this problem. And if we approach it the way we have been taught to approach it, the way that many of the, the voices in entrepreneurship will tell you to do it, you, you don't achieve the results you want, but you are absolutely wasted. In our case, it could easily have meant, well, my health could have been trashed, my wife and I, marriage, you could have it. You know, people literally have those things blow up. The family culture that we've worked 20 years to develop, proud of, could easily be used, wasted and used up as well. And still, Eve isn't going to get any better. And what we found, and it was a great mercy to us, was the idea that there was a different way of doing life, that you could do it in such a way that you weren't so anxious all the time. So the antidote for that we found was like, let's call it radical gratitude. Now, there's lots of threads to what one can do differently, but I'll stay with just that one theme uh, in, in my answer. Be thankful for everything, in everything, for every challenge. I am thankful that the, that the you know, I'm thankful that the doctors don't know what's going on. And you have no idea why you're thankful at that at first, but then you go, well, at least there are doctors that are interested. At least we're able to move on to somebody else. Uh, we're thankful for the, for, for the challenge we have because it's building our unity as a family. And I learned this very, here's, here's a lesson I learned from all of this is, is that if you focus, if you focus on what you lack, you're going to lose what you have. And if you focus on what you have, you're going to gain what you lack. And that is a principle for the ages. In good times and bad, you focus what, what, you, the effortless path, the more effortless journey, the lighter, better, smarter strategy, way to do life grows out of the mindset I just described. It's been, well, it was a two-year journey in all for us. And Eve is, is fully back. She's fully well again. And it was a completely game-changing experience for us. Uh, we, we, as a, it, it made us, it, it didn't, it didn't destroy us and it could have done. And I, and, and that really gave me, um, I mean, it turned out to be really timely set of experiences and, and insights because as, as effortless came out, the world was in the midst of this pandemic, in which everybody suddenly had more responsibilities, more essential things than they could possibly do. Uh, and people, you all over the world are burning out. Uh, and, and in fact, to the degree that I think there's only two kinds of, sometimes I think there's only two kinds of people in the world right now. There are people who are burned out and there are people who know they are burned out. <laughs> uh, and, and effortless is, is an attempt at an antidote to that, born out of a very, very challenging situation, uh, but one that, that taught us there really is a different way to do everything. And we're programmed to do it this one way. But what a joy to discover that there's a different, better, easier, smarter approach. And I call that approach effortless. I'm really glad you shared that, uh, that story, first of all. And we're glad that Eve's doing, doing better now. And you guys have been able to figure that out as a family. Because I, I know firsthand how difficult that is to try to deal with as, as a family when one member is sick and worse yet, you don't know what's causing it, right? So I, I certainly feel for you there and, and know what you went through and, and, uh, and have felt it in my own life. So congratulations for that. The, uh, the second part is gratitude. It's such a powerful principle that I don't think that most people in our 
in humanity, I guess, fully understand what that does for them personally and what it allows them to do even more, right? So that actually happens to be the last chapter that I was listening to this morning on my run. And I remember, and as I heard that, I thought, man, that's a powerful principle. And then a couple minutes later, I found myself, you know, rather than complaining about the fact that I still had a quarter mile to go and I'm heaving, right, <laughs> to get home, to be grateful that I have a body that's capable of running and getting me, you know, through that, the exercise and all those sorts of things. So it does, it's, it's a mind shift in your, in your own mind or a mindset shift, I should say, um, that allows you to accomplish more. Yeah, look, life is suffering. Uh, life is full of, of test and challenge. You don't write a book called Effortless because you think life is easy. You write it because it's so hard for almost everyone almost all the time. And if you don't think it is for someone else, it's almost always because you don't know them well enough. And when you do, you discover that there is serious suffering going on in some corner, in some aspect of their life. Uh, and, and so, you know, what do we live for? Uh, said said uh, Elliot, he said, what do we live for but to make life less difficult for each other? And, and that's the spirit of effortless. It's like essential things don't have to be the hardest possible thing in our lives. You can, you can shift the system so it works in your favor, stack the decks in your favor so that the essential things become, what would happen? I'll leave you on this question. What would happen in your life if the essential things became effortless and the non-essential things became really hard? <laughs> what would happen? That, that's the promise of, of essentialism plus effortless together is that you, you actually get to design a system that reinforces the essential things so that you can break through to even a 10x level of contribution, but without burning out. That's what's, that's what's been of interest to me in writing both of those books. Fantastic. Well, Landon, I'm going to let you have some final thoughts. I've got some final thoughts when you're finished. and then. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Austin. Uh, Greg, that was phenomenal. So um, thank you. Thank you for your thoughts, for your stories, for your advice. Uh, yeah, just thank you for being with us. And I would... I'd, I'd kick myself under the desk or, or better yet, virtually I'd kick Austin under, under the desk if I didn't ask you this, but we'd love to have you come back on the show. You know, maybe we can agree before the end of this calendar year, we can bring you back on the show and talk more about effortless, have the same, you know, quality discussion that we had today, more focused on essentialism, but we could have that with effortless. You don't have to answer me right now, but we just know that I'm extending that invite to you so that we can continue the discussion with you. But again, uh, thank you for being with us. Really enjoyed the conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And I'll be brief, Greg, because I know you got to go. I just got your text message saying that you've got another meeting. So just I'll just leave you with this. Knowing that you live or are striving to live the essentialist lifestyle, we truly appreciate that you found this important enough to be on the program with us today. It's been my real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you both yeah. of you. So feel free to drop off. We'll catch up with you on, on pictures afterwards. I, I do have a couple of comments I'm going to finish with, though. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for being with us today here on our 100th episode. It was a pleasure to have Greg McEwen on the, on the program with us today. 
I would be feeling ungrateful in my own life if I didn't take an opportunity to mention on this 100th episode that there's nobody that I would rather do this with than Landon Mance. Landon is my business partner. He's my co-host. And I consider him a very close friend and a friend being the, the most important part of that at the end. So Landon, thanks so much for going on this journey with us and or on with me and f- almost forcing us to put together this podcast a couple of years ago. Yeah, well, you're welcome, brother. And uh, the feeling could, could not be any more mutual. So thank you as well. All right. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance. Austin and Landon are comprehensive financial planning professionals specializing in financial, estate, and succession planning for small business owners. Austin and Landon have offices in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Las Vegas, Nevada, and represent clients in 14 states throughout the country. Join Austin, Landon, and the Featured Tycoons live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. right here on Business Radio X and your favorite podcast platform.